Okay, I'm recording. You're you recording. Can say everything, you can say lots of funny oh, things I can now. Say all the humorous things that I've been saving up for the last 30 seconds. <laughs> you can tell me about all the exciting things you've done this week. Nothing. Zilch. Zero. But it's nice that we've got some new patrons. Yes, it's, this is a public episode, isn't it? But we it can is. still say thank you to the patrons. We can say thank you to the patrons because it might encourage some more members of the public to become them. I know. And think of all the benefits, Sam, of becoming a patron. I know. Like? Episodes. Extra episodes. My doodles. Yes. Every week I take lots of time and put a lot of effort into these doodles that I do. You do? Upwards of some hours. A couple of hours. Yeah. Uh, I find my finest biro and off I go. Your best crayon. <laughs> uh, you also get some songs, which I wrote many months ago now, one for each patron tier. You get an episode every other week as well. I might listen to those again. Actually, quite, uh, yeah, occasionally I do when I need to go to sleep. <laughs> when you need to perk yourself up. When I've had a bad day. When you want to feel happy. Oh, I'm just looking at my picture from last week. There's a Puby Frankenstein. Have you seen Puby Frankenstein on a boat? I love Puby Frankenstein on a boat. <laughs> my, f- my favourite techno band. Techno, techno, techno. A Puby, Puby Frankenstein. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. Good. Latvia's Eurovision entry for uh, 2021, I believe. <laughs> I am the sexy monster. The sexy, sexy monster. <laughs> Puby, puby, Frankenstein, yeah, yeah, puby, yeah. Puby, puby, monster. <laughs> I am the monster from your U-Bend. No U-Bend? <laughs> Shower trap. <laughs> God, Sam, get your plumbing terminology right, you absolute <laughs> wank stain. The monster from the U-Bend is far more revolting. <laughs> <laughs> when you get asked to write a story in school, when you're like nine years old. <laughs> the monster in the U-Bend. The poo that wouldn't flush. <laughs> And then I woke up and it was all a dream. <laughs> Speaking of poos that sh- uh, that won't flush, should we do a podcast? <laughs> <laughs> go for it, yeah. Speaking of bad smells that hang around for months yeah. on end. <laughs> yeah, go for it. Whoa, 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 though, Tom. Before we start, we've got another history podcast to talk about. Oh, yes. This week, I have been listening to Historical AF. It's another comedy history podcast. (laughs) Can't move from now like London bloody buses. It's presented by the lovely Kina. I've been absolutely loving it. It is a fantastic podcast. I think people who listen to that was genius. Well, we know you've got great taste. So uh, once you finish with this episode... Have a little listen to it. What harm could it do? You'll find it on all your podcasting apps of choice, sir. Wherever you listen to That Was Genius, you'll find historical AF. But enough from me. Here's Kina herself with a few words about the podcast. Hello there, Gigawater gang. I'm Kina, the host of the boozy and delightfully foul-mouthed comedy podcast, Historical AF. I'm a nerdy public historian that is joined by a special guest each week to deliver funny, weird, spooky, and morbid historical nuggets you never knew you needed in your ear holes. Past topics have included the magical manhood of Russia's mad monk Rasputin, my hot take that aliens did not build the pyramids, serial killers that both my parents happened to meet as children, listen, I know what you're thinking, Kina, how do you even exist right now? Also, who was it? All right, I'll tell you. Spoiler alert, it was Sean Wayne Gacy and Mark Allen Smith. Anywho, we can't forget the spooky. I've covered topics ranging from the ghosts of Anne Boleyn to the night marchers in Hawaii. Don't look at them, guys. If you do, you have to strip naked and you have to lay on the dirt. Dim's the rules. 
You can listen and subscribe to Historical AF wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Historical AF Pod. And finally, you can check out the website for links to listen, sources, because citing is sexy, photos, and more at historicalafpodcast.com. Okay, bye! Hello and welcome to That Was Genius, the little history podcast in which Tom... Always drinking a beer. Yeah, as always. Bloody Uh. hell, Tom, it's seven o'clock in the morning. And (laughs) Sam, who's over here, are drinking whiskey. Discuss history stories on a theme each week. We decide the theme two weeks in advance, or a week in advance as it used to be. But everything else that happens is a surprise. And what, Tom, what the flipping heck is our theme this week? The theme is little things slash people. I think, strictly speaking, it's little people, but you wanted to broaden it to little things, didn't you? I've done a little thing with a little number of people. Ah, okay. I see what you've done there. I've been very strict with myself, and I've gone for little people. You always are. Yeah, I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) I often just decide, I want to do this. How can I (laughs) justify wanting to read up about this topic? (laughs) I know how I'll justify doing this topic I want. That has nothing to do with the subject for the week. Mm, I won't give a fuck. (laughs) (laughs) Or I'll make up a silly song. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Talking of songs, Sam. Oh, God. I've been listening to a new CD that I found a few days ago in a telephone box. (laughs) Christ, here we go. It was one of those community share shit CDs, telephone boxes. (laughs) I think... uh... Cher will have issues with you calling her her oeuvre shit, but, but go on. She does hang around a lot in telephone boxes, actually, Cher. Yeah, she does. Yeah, the whore. <laughs> no, <I don't. laughs> looking Sorry. For, looking, for, looking for sailors. Like, um, yeah, so you know that you get those That's mini... That's not true. We love you, Cher. I don't. Uh, do you know those mini libraries <laughs> where the only rule is that you have to replace the book you take out when you take, you know, you have to swap books? Yes. And within a few weeks of this, you know, well-meaning community (laughs) initiative, the quality of the books has generated. (laughs) Yeah, it's gone down to people. There's just 50 copies of the Radio Times in there from from 1998. That's that's pretty much it. Well, it turns out I did find a good CD. It was a little known collection of Michael Jackson songs from when he was going through his vegetable stage. Right. Yeah. I mean, the, the... Yes, so many of Michael Jackson's songs are, are forgotten from when he was a small independent artist. <laughs> when he was just, not just the Prince of Pop, not the King of Pop, but just the Prince of Pop. Yeah. The Duke of Pop, making his way through the LA open mic scene. Yeah, yeah. Singing Oasis covers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, and, and his vegetable songs. Well, of course, and his vegetable songs. Was he playing them on a vegetable? Did he have a little vegetable orchestra? No, but he would dance like a vegetable. So a lot of his dance moves were inspired by allotments. Sorry, I just thought of an appalling line there, which uh, which almost certainly won't make the cut. Go for it. <laughs> like Christopher Reeves at a wedding. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, sometimes I'm just an awful person. <laughs> And then other times you're so fucking self-righteous. I know, yeah. It's, <laughs> it's amazing what makes it through the edit process, isn't it? <laughs> when I'm the editor. Oh, dear me. Anyway, yeah, so, so Michael Jackson's vegetable stage, uh, that's where this CD came from. And it opens with the very catchy song Beetroot. Oh, oh, good, yes. Okay, here we go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Beetroot, 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 Beetroot. 
I think pickled beetroot is very nice. I also like them roasted or with pilau rice. In fact, it doesn't matter. Just give me a slice of beetroot. <laughs> there's that one. Then there's this one. I'm talking with the man at the grocer's. I'm oh. asking him for a bag of kale. No spinach, potatoes or lettuce. I just want to make a smoothie tonight and I need some kale to make it right. <laughs> to make it rancid. <laughs> to make it rancid. I was convinced that you were going to go with, I'm talking to my prize winning marrow. <laughs> <laughs> I'm singing so it grows real big. <laughs> <laughs> It likes a nice baseline. <laughs> it likes an ericaceous mulch. <laughs> At least that's what Monty Don said on Gardener's World. I completely lost. I lost it at the end there. I like. I like the idea of a Michael Jackson Monty Don crossover. Yes. Got another one. It's a really powerful number from this this Go CD. On. What about carrots? Oh, yes. What about leeks? <laughs> what about all the things that you said you'd start class week? Um, <laughs> that's him complaining to the grocer. Um, and it finishes then with Smoothie Criminal. <laughs> nice. There you have it. Yeah, that's, that's my CD that I'll be listening to. Nice. Very good. I like that. Thanks. I like that. Um, would you like me to do audience feedback as well? Well, I, I'm kind of surprised, Tom, that you didn't mention the uh, the seminal vegetable storage track, uh, Michael Jackson's Chiller. Nice. Nice. That I, oh, I didn't even spot that one. I couldn't do anything with Billie Jean. Ch- chili Bean, fuck me. Oh, How did I miss that? Oh, yeah, there that? you go. Chili Bean. Yeah. In Stringy Bean. <laughs> Stringy Bean. Stringy Bean is not my friend. <laughs> It comes to haunt me at 3am. <laughs> <laughs> and it gets stuck in the you bend. <laughs> Do some audience feedback, Tom. We've got um, another message from Michael in Seattle. It's quite a long message. I'll go through it. Was listening to your episode 100 and thoroughly enjoyed it. For a while I was attending the US Thanks, Military Michael. Academy, our version of Sandhurst. And a punishment there was walking hours where in dress uniform you'd walk back and forth for hours at a time. Why in dress uniform? Is that like in an officer and a gentleman where Richard Gere's all smart like? I think it's more like in RuPaul's Drag Race when they're in a dress. Yeah. It's <laughs> very lots of sequins. Mm-hmm. Now walk, you piece of shit! <laughs> Straighten up that bra! Why <laughs> <laughs> that book on your head? Now look sassy! <laughs> hmm? <laughs> Those kitten heels ain't regulation. <laughs> Not work. <laughs> yeah, so if you walked 100 hours, you could earn an unofficial award called a Century Man. Mm. Um, we actually have a similar thing in the UK, don't we, Sam? It's called a Captain Tom Moore, you get. Um, <laughs> yes, you get made a knight. One of my biggest regrets, this is uh, Michael speaking, is by the time I left, I'd walk 97 hours, three short of becoming oh, a Century Michael, Man. Couldn't you just have been a bit more shit? Yeah, exactly. To get that just, extra three hours of punishment. Just so that you could have got that that official, unofficial award. Um, yeah. He also says something about um, silkworms from China. Um, yeah, he reckon, uh, historical heists as a topic. That's what he said. That's what oh, suggested. interesting. That's a good one. As usual, um, I'm having a pint while typing this out. Sadly, my partner is 
in fact sitting across from me and I'm not drinking alone while sending you a message. <laughs> Sadly. I know that, yeah, I know I don't know what's sadder. I know this will disappoint you, Sam. Keep up the good works, lads. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Michael. We always like listening uh, yeah. getting those messages from Michael, don't we? We do. And then we also had one uh, we've only got two bits of audience feedback. The other one was a very constructive um, it was a bit of hate mail <laughs> from a chap called Peter. Go on. Did you see that one? Oh, no, I missed that one. Where was that from? You didn't see the hate mail. Um, was this on... Where, where, who, where did he get in touch with us? Through the website. He was so Ooh, offended. He was so offended. He came to the web, through the website. He, no, I missed that. He actually took the time to fill out the contact form on the, web, <laughs> on the website. So Peter um, is one of those people who just can't help but air his views rather than just not listening any further, like 99% of people who try to listen to our podcast. Um, Peter felt like telling us it was impossible to listen to us idiots. Thank you for trying, Peter. We appreciate that. <laughs> oh, hang on. I'm not sure that that wasn't... I think he's actually asking where he can find us. Is he? Well, you won't yes. want to see... You won't want to see um, the response I sent him. Did you actually respond? Yes. What did you say? <laughs> it wasn't very nice. Was it not? I wonder Sent how one messages. can listen to you idiots. I'm sorry, but that that's hate mail. It's the message says, "I wonder how one can listen to you idiots." <laughs> yeah, like, where are you idiots? I can't hear you. I can't hear you on my podcast. <laughs> have a choice, Peter. Um, if you're listening, uh, <laughs> I mean, you're probably not. Sorry, that was lost in translation, Peter. If you have been listening and enjoying, I think he was being laddie. And I think in response, there's a good chance we'll just about we're about to find out that you were cunting. <laughs> <laughs> no, I wasn't. No, I think I was laddie in response. So I think I think I've balanced it quite nicely. I think he's going to have. I think if it was a laddie comment, he will have enjoyed the response. Okay, I I responded with thank you for your message, Peter. We take listener feedback very seriously. <laughs> Your complaint has been forwarded to the relevant department and filed under E for enormous fetid twat face. Kind regards, <laughs> the team. That was genius. Did you actually respond? Yeah, yes, I did. Wow. He hasn't responded. <laughs> Fucking hell. This, do I need to ban you from the website? Do I need to change the password? No. You're supposed to be our PR department. Exactly. <laughs> Authenticity, Sam. That's what people like nowadays. Is it? Right. <laughs> yeah. If he if he if he enjoys a bit of banter, then he'll have liked that response. <laughs> He's on our fucking website. Surely he knows how how one can listen to us idiots. On that note, <laughs> audience, if you'd like to get in touch with Tom, <laughs> we can make this a thing. It can be like Gordon Ramsay reviewing people's food. I, I um, am now slightly concerned, though, Sam, because now that you've interpreted it in that way, I'm wondering whether he was actually just trying to listen to the... Because the, the feed wasn't working earlier in the week. No. <laughs> <laughs> so, so right around the time that our website temporarily stopped working, the feed on our website... Someone emailed to ask, how can I listen to this podcast? And your response was <laughs> <laughs> to file their email under enormous twat face. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Beautiful. Well. <laughs> if you are listening, Peter. Fuck my life. <laughs> I'm very sorry. I'm very sorry. <laughs> Audience, if you want to get in touch with Tom, uh, you can oh, dear. email that was geniuscast at gmail.com. Uh, oh dear me. Beautiful. I'm so glad that one was on air. <laughs> oh, 
Right, on that note, as penance, it's your turn to go first this week. <laughs> so, on to my piece. I began my <laughs> research... you said your piece. <laughs> um, I began my research by looking at strange deities from ancient Egypt, but I thought that needed um, to be given more... <laughs> Just like more. last week. <laughs> yeah, I think I needed to leave it a little bit longer before I go back to ancient Egypt. And it also was a topic that needed um, a better episode topic to justify it. Um, so I'll keep that <laughs> yeah. one for another time. I couldn't really... The funny bits weren't actually about the small people. completely normally sized gods of Egypt. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was going to start out as, here's a, here's a funny Egyptian god that's small. Here are a load of other ones that are not small, but they're funny. Danny DeVitas. <laughs> <laughs> Instead, I started researching small military units from history. Much like ah. I did in our episode about left-handed people, episode yes. seventy-three, a cat-handed tossing of children and females. <laughs> Sometimes I've forgotten what went on in these episodes, and I do <laughs> wonder where the fuck the titles came from. <laughs> <laughs> as as with that episode, it was difficult to find much, but what I did find was very well documented. It's probably reasonably well known, and more importantly, I'm not going to just be mocking people with disabilities like dwarfism. Just people with runty genetics. <laughs> I'm talking about the Here we go. <laughs> British Bantam unit from World War One. Not to be confused with the British Banter units. Hey, hey, right, hey, let's, hey, let's, 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 hey. Who were on your birthday would just bump you up over the top of the trenches. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Birthday bumps. Birthday bumps. Ten of the best. <laughs> Gary, remember Gary? Remember Gary's birthday? He got, oh. shot, he got shot on the 8th. <laughs> right through his head. Uh, lads, 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 lads. Um, so, uh, yeah, so the, the word bantam is fairly well known from combat sports. Bantam weight being a, a weight for the for smaller fighters in MMA and boxing. Yes, yeah. And it actually comes originally from a port in Indonesia called Bantam, where Europeans would stock up on the local ah. small chickens. Yes, I was going to say, because I used to keep bantam chickens. Did you really? Where did yeah. you keep your bantam chickens? Uh, up my ass. No, we had them in the garden. <laughs> in a chicken in a chicken coop. In a rug. In, in in Croydon. Not in Croydon, no. They, they wouldn't have lasted long. <laughs> no, I didn't no think... this was back in the New Forest. Ah, we had land. Very nice. Yeah, we had seven. Seven, seven land. Wow. We had seven That's lands. A big land. Yeah. Seven la- seven <laughs> lands. How much land do you own? Seven. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> wow, you are wealthy. <laughs> Will Truly, you marry my daughter? You're a, you're a man of many land. <laughs> <laughs> Which land would you like to live in today? We have Narnia. <laughs> Oak furniture land. <laughs> <laughs> Cartridge world for all your printer refilling needs. They're all shit lands. <laughs> um, at the outbreak of World War I, so July 1914, Britain had a minimum height requirement for joining the army. However, the army, led by Lord Kitchener, Secretary of State of War, was completely overwhelmed with people enlisting. One way of reducing the supply of men, very crude as it was, was to change the height requirement. So in the first... Just to have them all killed. <laughs> just to send them over the top. <laughs> yes, no, just to put them in the war. We train them first, then we put them over the top. Um, <laughs> so in the first few months of the war, the height requirement was changed on a number of occasions, just to try and alter the speed people were um, getting into the system. Seven foot minimum Troops. height. <laughs> yeah, there were a few seven footers. There were some good uh, pictures. Yeah, there were. There were some very good pictures of these Bantam um, units that I'm about to come on to. And then often they're 
um, these these small soldiers are standing next to some of the tallest soldiers. By November 1914, the min- minimum height was five foot three inches or 160 centimeters for our uh, European friends. And this sounds That's very very small. Yes. Well, it sounds very short today, but in the 1910s, the average height of a British male was around five foot six or 171. Hmm. Centimeters, and today the average height of a male is five foot nine or 175 centimeters. So the minimum height was the equivalent to someone who's five foot six or 171 centimeters today. And there are many reasons why British men over 100 years ago were much shorter than they are today. For a start, they ate far too much uh, boiled vegetables almost with every meal, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And and not only does this cooking technique make food smaller, it makes men smaller too. Um, of course, it does. Yes, it gets rid of all of the water in them. Exactly, so it just dries them yeah, all so up. Yeah, so just steam off. Yeah. And all the goodness. So if you eat a small yes. person, um, they're not as nutritious. No. Houses were smaller also, so it was an evolutionary yeah, disadvantage to be tall. Completely. Yeah. And then there were rickets. So many men were actually much taller, but due to the excessive bowing of their legs, they weren't really making the most of their height. No, very um, wide. Manspreading was a huge problem on early buses. Ah, a huge problem. But there were lots of places to store your luggage. <laughs> between between your legs. Between other people's legs as well sometimes. Yeah, yes, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Not to forget, of course, Tom, that uh, back in the day, without the advanced construction materials that we have today, the sky was a lot heavier. It was, it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And, and I forgot about gravity as well, actually, back in 19... 19- well, of course, yeah. I mean, gravity back in the days of the uh, imperial system was very much heavier than the, than the modern... Uh, or as we call it, short metric gravity. Yeah, people take that for granted. Oh, they really do, yeah. Changes in gravity. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, the minimum height standard uh, was for obvious reasons. Being in the army is a physical job, believe it or not. And this height minimum was a crude way of ensuring that runty men didn't sign up. <laughs> the government also couldn't be bothered sewing up the trousers on their mass-produced uniforms. And that was actually a genuine concern that I read. <laughs> At the end of 1914, a group of miners from Cheshire got pissed off with this minimum height requirement. They wished to join the army, and they were bloody fit because of their job, but they were being dismissed because of their height. Um, At every recruitment office they attended, they were turned away. One of the miners was apparently so pissed off... Had they not tried stacking themselves three high (laughs) with a giant trench coat? (laughs) Hello. (laughs) My name is Big Barry. (laughs) Oh, I do love being tall and a cunt and tall. <laughs> Isn't being tall good fun? I can look yes. down my nose at people. All the poor little short people who just want to help. <laughs> I'm a bit wobbly on my legs, though. But <laughs> it's on account of the rickets and the very, very heavy sky. <laughs> um, one of the miners was apparently so pissed off that he walked around Birkenhead challenging anyone and everyone to a fight. Um, nothing came of this, though. <laughs> That's the start of a good military career. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, nothing came of this, though, because all the other men in Birkenhead couldn't see where the voice was coming from. <laughs> it's a scrappy do running around on the floor. <laughs> Come on, put them up. Put them on. Up. I'll take you all on. Once at a time, or all at once. Come on. <laughs> I'll bite your kneecaps. <laughs> I can have you. Um... You're going home in an ambulance, I tell you. <laughs> Local MP, and uh, no, I'm not Wait making... Wait until I get my ladder. <laughs> <laughs> you just stay there. I'm going to go and get a stool. You just wait. <laughs> and that's how they shot Mission Impossible. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Local MP, and uh, no, I'm not making this up, Alfred Bigland, 
um, stepped in <laughs> and argued the miner's case to the war office. <clears throat> Good afternoon, Alfred Bigland here, representing people from Little Land. Now I, yes. now I hear that the Little Landers are being discriminated <laughs> against by Big Landers. Not me, though. I'm a Big Lander who supports Little Landers. What's a Little Lander? But you, Big Landers are stopping Little Landers from signing up. <laughs> also, thank you for lending me your time. Uh, the little borrowers of time here are <laughs> very keen to talk to you. <laughs> uh, um, anyway, Alfred, who look at me, I'm Big Land, was successful. Um, his argument was really rather simple. These men were exceptionally fit, as opposed to six foot six, Lord Clements. Oh, look at him. Look away! Look at those rickets. Look at their thighs on that. <laughs> Normally, I'm more of a boob man, but his ass. <laughs> Hold on to that thought, young man. <laughs> Little men with big boobs, Sam, because we're going to get back to that. <laughs> Hooray! <laughs> yeah. I'll let you try and work out how. You found my kink. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so, uh, well, that and trains. Uh, <laughs> no, no. The same kink. <laughs> Ask me how. <laughs> In five minutes, when I've calmed down. Choo-choo. Um, <laughs> so Alfred Bigland's argument was really rather simple. These men were exceptionally fit, as opposed to six-foot-six Lord Clements Parpington Bottom Burp, who doesn't even know how to tie up his shoelaces. <laughs> But wasn't malnourished. And he can't reach them. As he grew up. Yeah, I can't reach them. I'm so tall. Yeah. I'll just have to get my manservant to do it. Anyway, the war office agreed to allow Alfred Bigland to create two Birkenhead battalions for the Litlands. <laughs> From 1914, special Bantam battalions were created for recruits who were between the height of five foot and five foot three. Um, Lord Kitchener liked this idea because it shifted responsibility for processing these new recruits to local committees and it meant that the army didn't get overrun again. Um, the war office would then take the new recruits once they'd been processed and kitted out and they would take them on to their training phase. Can you follow orders? Uh, yes, good. And that is all the training you're getting. Yep. We're worried that the big guns are probably a little bit too big for you, so rather than a rifle, we've given you a little spud gun and a Dennis the Menace-style catapult. <laughs> <laughs> for pinging at people's knees. Yes. We'll do the proper shooting, you just kind of be a nuisance. <laughs> yep. um, and here, take this pocket knife, <laughs> it is your bayonet. Sellotape <laughs> that to the end of this cricket stump. <laughs> um, those wanting to join these battalions were given a medical once-over and were required to have a larger chest measurement than their taller comrades, hence the boob. Um, comment uh, a larger the... chest measurement? I'm sure that, that must be proportional. Proportionally larger chest measurement. I I, because what, I... Or they just wanted really buff midgets. If, if they can <laughs> have little people in the army, they just want them to be able to bang out the push-ups. Um, yeah, fair enough. I mean, if you can have midgets in your army, why not have midgets with ripped pecs? Yes, why not have midgets with quite uh, with a yeah. Boolean Yates grade lat spread? <laughs> Going into battle, ping! Bullets just <laughs> pinging off their boobs. <clears throat> I thought that was the shirt buttons popping open as they <laughs> flex the flex the pecs. 
tiny, tiny bodybuilders. I like the idea of just loads of really tanned men in tiny shorts, budgie smugglers, <laughs> <laughs> just running across no man's land, flexing. <laughs> oh, yeah. you shoot me, I'm invincible. The Germans are like, Ach ja, flex for us. This is very good. We are German. Everyone knows we like the nudity in public and we love the tanned yes. skin. We love the ripped men. <laughs> No, it's just an appreciation of the beautiful human form. <laughs> to begin with, the Bantams joined two divisions, the 35th and the 40th. Now, I get very confused when talking about military structures, whether it be the units or hierarchy of um, positions and titles, but I understand that a division is the largest unit of men, which is then divided into brigades, then battalions. Um, yes. It would appear from what I could fathom that the two divisions, the 35th and the 40th, had three brigades each, and those brigades were made up of between 6 to 12 battalions. Also in these divisions, the infantry battalions were supported by artillery, engineer, medical and other slightly more specialist battalions. And these divisions are designed to be able to completely operate independently under the uh, command of a lieutenant general or major general. That's what I, that's what I discovered in my research. That is basic battle formation, yes. Yeah, good job. Uh, during the wars, they consisted of around 16,000 men, and in World War One, there were 76 infantry divisions plus eight cavalry divisions. Now the British Army only has two divisions. That's massive, isn't it? Yeah. But then I suppose it was World it's War. It's a lot of men. Yeah. It was World War One. yeah. <laughs> um, so to return to the start, to have managed to form two whole divisions, almost entirely of Bantams, was really quite something. In total, there were an estimated 30,000 Bantams in the British forces. Together, they added up to nearly three normal soldiers. <laughs> One such battalion was the Highland Light Infantry's 18th Battalion. They developed a reputation. Yes, uh, they were they were in fact very light as well, being as they were quite small. Well, no, they were quite buff. They were they were some of the bodybuilders. Oh, of course builders. they were. Sorry, yeah, yeah. very high BMI. <laughs> Clearly, yeah, they developed a reputation for starting fights in Glasgow bars and were nicknamed the Devil's Dwarves. Here's a contemporary <laughs> anonymous poem: Each one a pocket Hercules, five feet and a bit, a kind of bovril essence of six feet British grit. I like that. That's a nice sort of. I, I like that. Yeah. yeah, quite good that. Um, at the start of the war, the Bantams were mostly good recruits, although in the words of Glaswegian Bantam George Cunningham, we had a lot of wee wads, wee wads, wee lads, <laughs> who never should have been accepted. I was fair disgusted at the medics for taking them all in. We youngsters with a bit of heft to us could see there wasn't much chance for a fighting battalion until they got rid of the runts. Another battalion was a thousand yeah, strong. I mean, that's a cutting remark, isn't it? <laughs> from, from a fellow... You're talking about the runts of the... <laughs> Bantam, yeah. Well, this is one of the problems. This is one of the major problems with the Bantams. Another battalion was a thousand strong when it arrived for basic training, but ended up being reduced to just 200 men after medical assessments. Um, oh, wow. It would appear, though, that these were the exception, and the majority of the Bantams who signed up at the start were good quality, and a significant number were very, very good quality. The idea was popular in other areas of the world, too. So there were um, a couple of Canadian battalions for Bantams that were set up. Anyway. Yes, um, they're quite famous, weren't they? They were famous for being um, really violent in, a, <laughs> violent in a scrap on the battlefield. <laughs> quite a fearsome reputation. As opposed they? To in the a Canadian bar. ones? Yeah, yeah, they were. Not very, that's not very Canadian, is it? Oh, I know. Not very polite. Well, they were very polite as they did it. <laughs> Apologised when they... Three, completely well, fucked you up. Three of them <laughs> jumped on a out. German and yeah. pulled out his eyeballs. Bashed his head in with a teaspoon. They were wielding with both hands like a <laughs> shovel. <laughs> Bully beef. <laughs> I love you. I love you. <laughs> anyway. 
Anyway, things started off reasonably well for the Bantams. On a rather funny note, there were problems, however, with the fire steps in the trenches. Um, these fire steps were where the infantrymen would stand to shoot above the parapet. And when the Bantams turned up, the steps needed raising. But then anyone of a normal height couldn't shoot safely. <laughs> Captain Richard Pearson, quote, Sir, them bloody little dwarves have built up the fire steps so they could see over. Now when my lads stand up, half their bodies are above the parapet. <laughs> yeah. There was plenty of banter in the trenches directed at the Bantams, but they gave as good as they got, apparently. Even the Germans apparently joined in and all used to shout cock doodle do when they saw them arriving in the trench opposite them. <laughs> <laughs> hey, people say Germans don't have a sense of humour. Cock ein Stoodle D. <laughs> what will we do? I like the little men. Quick, put on your extra long socks. They can't bite you. <laughs> put on your extra long lederhosen. <laughs> In the first few years of the war, the performance of the Bantams appears mixed. There were successes and failures, good reports, bad reports. It's difficult to get a very clear idea of how good they were relative to other divisions because... Your success as a battalion seems to have been very dependent on how good the bloke was who was in charge of your battalion. So yes. if your battalion was constantly being sent over the top, badly resourced and attacking strong German positions, you were likely uh, to get a high number of deserters, deaths and very low morale. What we do know is that the Bantam battalions were given plenty of action, so they were not given favourable treatment, so they fought in some of the most famous and brutal battles of the First World War, including the Somme. Here's an example of a success. Captain Angus Mackenzie Forsyth earned himself a military cross for displaying a total disregard for his own personal safety <laughs> when he led a group of Bantams to capture... For his own personal safety, a total disregard nice. <laughs> um, when he led a group of Bantams and he, they captured another German position and they captured the position then beat off um, four counter-offensives. <laughs> I bet they did, the saucy little <laughs> bastards. <laughs> Higher, higher, no, we're Bantams. Lower, lower, <laughs> that's more like it. <laughs> Here's an example of a failure. That was genius, the Funny History Podcast. <laughs> what? No? <laughs> Is that Peter? Peter editing this episode. <laughs> um, in December 1916, 26 Bantams were sentenced to death for cowardice because they abandoned their posts. Only three of them were actually executed. The other 23 just had their hat shot off. Yeah, they shot high, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. I was hoping that was where you were going. <laughs> but actually, one lined up if you didn't. <laughs> it's a good joke, and it's also factual, because three of them were executed, and the other 23 were given hard labour or something for 10 or 15 years. Uh, this from the division commander. There are, however, some 400 men in the division, of whom 334 are in the Durham Light Infantry, who are recommended for transfer as being unsuitable mentally and physically for infantry soldiers, and it is possible that any of them would have behaved similarly under the circumstances described. In view of the mental and physical degeneracy of these men, I consider that although the sentence passed on all six is a proper one, the extreme penalty might be carried out in the case of the two NCOs only, and the sentence of the four privates be commuted to a long term of penal servitude, and this I recommend. Um, that was a quote I found that I think was associated with the same event where, uh, where ah. there were a number of cowards. The event highlighted a trend. As the war wore on, and remember it was supposed to be over by Christmas, the Bantam battalions, like all battalions, suffered huge casualties. But unfortunately for the Bantam battalions, it was far harder to replace those who'd been killed. And those Litlands who turned up in the second half of the war were of questionable quality, rather than being the... There were eight. <laughs> No, that's true. Rather than being tough little <laughs> yes. miners and shipbuilders, they were just the runty cretins, literally, as short because they were undernourished, and many of them were also underage. 
Yes. So yeah, that was a genuine problem. And not long after the desertion incident described, the Bantams of the 35th Division were inspected for their suitability to fight, and almost 2,800 men were moved away from fighting roles. Wow. And these Bantams were replaced by normal height soldiers, and the division logo was changed from a chicken, a Bantam, to um, seven interconnected fives. So the second half of the war, the Bantam divisions basically merged with normal divisions. Imagine being someone like Stephen Merchant and being moved into <laughs> moved into a division of Bantams. You are going to make yourself a target, aren't you? Quite literally, when you try and shoot over the top yeah. <laughs> or on that big high step. Well, you'd have to kneel on it, wouldn't you? Yeah. Um, Anyway, uh, where was I in my notes? Yeah, a large number of them fought all the way through the war, including a chap called Lance Corporal Michael Dempsey, who was involved in the farce that led to 26 Bantams being tried for cowardice. He was unable to complete a raid on a German position for various reasons, so he wasn't tried for cowardice. And he actually won the military medal in 1918. And this case oh. highlighted what I mentioned before about the performance of Bantams being difficult to assess due to the fact that the success of any battalion was largely down to how good the decision-making was from the people in charge on the subject of tall people um, in charge one notable bantam was Henry Thridgould who at 4 foot 9 inches tall became one of the shortest corporals in the British Army and Field Marshal Montgomery he was a brigade major of the 104th Bantam Brigade during World War 1 and Billy Butlin of shitty holiday venue fame was a bantam during the First World War was he? yeah there you go he was a South African chap wasn't he Billy Butlin and he was a bantam fighter Phantom ah. infantrymen. Very good. Interesting. Thank you very much. Well researched as well. And that was another attempt by me to have a shorter contribution. <laughs> 46 minutes. Nice. 46 minutes. Yeah. I mean, there was a lot of wank at the beginning we can cut out. Not from your bit. I mean, just like general podcast intro. General wankery. Keep the Peter bit in. <laughs> oh, thank you, Tom. Brilliant. I thought I'd take a look at small countries today. I was going to say small cunts for a minute. <laughs> Tom Cruise. <laughs> um. I, I think I found a pretty good one, Tom. But I'm going to start with an honourable mention for the Australian Empire. And it's a bit of a cop-out, this one, because it totally doesn't count and was never even close to being legitimate. But it was very short-lived. Oh, yeah, that is tenuous. Yeah, uh, that's why it's an honourable mention. So the Australian Empire existed for a matter of hours during the Castle Hill Convict Rebellion from the 4th to the 5th of March 1804. And it was an uprising where a group of hundreds of Irish convicts who'd been transported to Australia revolted against the British in the area around Sydney. Long story short, the rebellion was actually pretty well planned but was let down by bad communication and the rebels found themselves pretty quickly surrounded. Towards the end of the rebellion, its head, a guy called Philip Cunningham, was elected the leader of the Australian Empire... (laughs) with Sydney being declared a sovereign territory known as New Ireland, and he was king for less than a day before being arrested by the British. Interestingly, though, because I went down the route of smallest empires, Australia itself actually had a fairly odd colonial history. There were a group of socialist outcasts who founded New Australia in Paraguay in 1893, so Australia did have one very small colony. It was under the leadership of a guy named William Lane, these guys were, were communists. They'd originally wanted to settle in an uninhabited part of Australia before realising there was a reason that no one lives in the uninhabited parts of Australia <laughs> and tried South America instead. Bogans. That was the reason. <laughs> uh, well, I was going with deserts, but yeah, Bogans too. <laughs> so this colony, New Australia, was supposed to be a socialist utopia for all. 
free of all vice and all struggle. Unfortunately, Tom, this is an Australian colony, and so freedom and equality for all had a little asterisk at the end, just a little one, that said, but only if you're white. (laughs) (laughs) And you like watching a league. (laughs) (laughs) And you like Castlemaine. Otherwise, you can fuck (laughs) off. Well, I was going to say, Tom, because it was an Australian colony, vice apparently didn't extend to getting rat assed (laughs) And so despite alcohol being banned, everyone spent their time absolutely smashed on moonshine. (laughs) Whilst also getting booted out of the colony for shagging the locals, which was banned because of the whole racism, white supremacy thing. It was also, quite bizarrely, only a socialist utopia for the very rich. The joining fee to be allowed to be part of this great communist plan was £60, which doesn't sound much, but that was the price of a decent house in Australia at the time. There are no such thing. <laughs> there are no such things as a decent house in Australia. <laughs> well, no. Yeah, for the f- funnel web infested shithole <laughs> <laughs> with a nice pool. Eventually, Lane got fed up of all the drinking and fucking and having a good time and not being as racist as he thought you were going to be, and took his most radical followers to start an even smaller, even more racist and communist colony of a colony of a colony. So, New Australia had a colonial history <laughs> called. Cosma or New New Australia to its friends. That only lasted a few years before Lane gave up on the whole thing, went back to Australia, gave up on communism and became a far-right monarchist. <laughs> which, is a, which is a bit of a turnaround. The only explanation I can find is that he realised that all of his leadership wasn't quite so easy as he thought. Yeah, that's a nice, nice example of how the political spectrum is a bit of a circle, isn't it? You go far enough left, yes. you end up on the right. Uh, much like the world. Take that, flat earthers. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, uh, New Australia and uh, and Cosmos still exist. And there are a few thousand people in the local area who can trace their heritage back to those those settlers in the late Is that uh, right? 1800s. What's the name of the town where these people live in Paraguay? Is it called New, New Australia? Australia? Yeah. It is actually called New Australia. It's called New Australia. Wow. That's a good, that's an interesting fact. I like that. I think it's like Nuevo Australia or something in, you know... Something slightly more Spanish sounding these days. Fair enough. But anyway, Tom, that's just an honourable mention. My main story today is the island of Tavolara, which until the mid-20th century was the smallest kingdom in the world. And it has quite a sweet and funny history involving halitosis-riddled goats, (laughs) Queen Victoria and a family restaurant. I'm glad you didn't mix those up. (laughs) A halitosis-ridden Queen Victoria and a goat (laughs) restaurant. (laughs) Yeah, indeed. A halitosis-ridden restaurant and a goat Queen Victoria. <laughs> yeah. Queen Victoria's Queen Victoria, goat. <laughs> Queen Victoria-riddled goat. <laughs> or a goat-riddled Queen Victoria. I say. <laughs> now, this is a bit of a cheat, Tom, because this kingdom was only ever kind of partially recognised. But, as we've spoken about in this podcast before, back in the day, it didn't take much to be a recognised kingdom. And it... Got quite a quite a lot of recognition, more than you would think, given that it started out as the in-joke of a mad old Italian. But anyway, here we go. First, a little bit of history. Uh, Tavalar Island is just off the coast of Sardinia, and it's basically just a big hill. It's about three miles long and half a mile wide, almost all just sheer cliffs into the sea, apart from a small flat plain and a beach at either end. Pretty much forever it's been completely uninhabited. Those few who tried were quickly chased off by pirates. But in 1807, (laughs) a guy called Giuseppe Bertaglioni turned up. Uh, Incidentally, Tom, Giuseppe Bertaglioni is the name of every single minor character in every single Martin Scorsese film. (laughs) I thought it sounded like an olive oil. (laughs) It does, yeah. Yeah. Giuseppe was from uh, Genoa. 
but had to flee on completely untrue and trumped-up charges, Tom. Completely untrue and trumped-up charges of bigamy. Fleeing Genoa, he rocked up on the island with one of his two wives and her kids and decided <laughs> to call it home. Now, Tom, the island is fairly dull, if rather beautiful. There's not much going on there. But it did have one very unusual feature. It was home to a herd of unique gold-toothed goats. <laughs> What, listening to hip-hop all the time? <laughs> yeah. Riding along in their dropped Cadillacs. <laughs> Lots of bling around their necks. Yeah. Don't really know much about goats to do a goat's hip-hop I was going to say, I don't know much about hip-hop to do <laughs> that. <laughs> well, between us, between us, with your excellent knowledge of, <laughs> of goats and my... Excellent knowledge uh, of hip-hop. Encyclopedic knowledge of old-school hip-hop, maybe we can come up with something. Um, uh, but, but not right now. So, yes, it was uh, home to a herd of unique gold-toothed goats. Not gold because they had excellent dental insurance, Tom, or a sparkling hip-hop career. Oh, no. But because of a rare kind of seaweed they ate off the cliff faces, which turned their teeth yellow. Word quickly spread about these gold-teeth-slash-rotten-teeth goats, (laughs) (laughs) and they became something of an urban legend. Eventually, word reached the king of Sardinia, a guy named Carlo Alberto. He was enthralled by these tales of rancid mouthed, rancid personality, cloven hooved little wankers on this little island in the middle of nowhere, and decided to go and check out the little prick's herd of goats. Ha 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 ha! Yes, I was making a very cruel joke about Giuseppe. And when he rocked up on the island in 1836, he was greeted by Giuseppe's son, Paolo, who jokingly introduced himself as the King of Tavalara a joke his father also made, because there isn't much humour on an island when there's just the eight of you. And a load of goats. Oh, oh, oh. I'm a the king. Oh, I'm a the king. Are you a the king? I'm a the king. We are all of the king of this little island. It's funny, yeah? Let's go to bed. It's a funny. It's a very funny. Why did my other wives leave me? <laughs> The king stayed with the Bertolioni family for three days, and according to legend, as a parting joke and as a gift for their hospitality, he actually declared Paolo the rightful king of the island, and Paolo in turn recognised his father Giuseppe as the original and true king. Now, with diplomatic immunity as official European royalty, the absolutely not a bigger Miss Giuseppe took the opportunity to round up all his other wives... (laughs) and moved the now three of them to the island with him. Did they Did they know? Or was it all a bit of a surprise when they turned up and realised there were two others? That's a very good question. Aye, <laughs> <laughs> you know, as the king, I have to go and make sure that all of the beautiful ladies on the island are doing just perfectly well. So uh, don't be surprised if I don't come back for two or three days. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they all look like me. It's a very small island. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear... So, yes, as a joke, the King of Sardinia recognised the throne of the island. That's uh, mine! This carried on. <laughs> How did you get that? What? You thieving little prick. <laughs> How do you get a hold of that? I, uh, no, no, it's just like any other chair. Hey, these goats? It's got my initials carved into it. <laughs> these goats, they got yeah, gold teeth, but they can also swim. Yes. And they're very sneaky. Yes. <laughs> hold on. Is that my Maserati? You have the... Yes. And is that my wife? <laughs> Sneaky goats. Hey, Sneaky goats, your majesty. Hey, <laughs> All was well until the early 1840s when a particularly officious Sardinian tax collector tried to have the family lands foreclosed for not paying their taxes. Outraged, Paolo travelled to the king in Turin, where Carlo Alberto confirmed in writing that yes, this land was the sovereign territory of the king of Tavalara. So he carried on with the joke. <laughs> like, 
No, it was a funnier the first time. It's a even the more funny now. <laughs> you can be a king of your shitty little rock. Uh, thrilled, Paolo went out and immediately got himself a coat of arms drawn up and began to style himself as the monarch of the world's smallest kingdom. Essentially, with the royal seal, the island uh, became... Uh, not <laughs> <laughs> Your Majesty! <laughs> <laughs> Throw a fish to the royal seal. <laughs> the bad, He's clapping, Tom. He's the clapping. Bad, He's the clapping. bad jokes are the best, aren't they? It's the seal of approval. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, with this in writing, it actually became the case that Tavalara became essentially a princely state, or at least a vassal state, ruled by a king that was subservient to Sardinia. The most appropriate term for the situation would be, and I, this is my favourite word of the day, which I learned today, a suzerainty, or, or a suzerainty. Yeah, suzerainty, yeah, okay. Uh, did you know that word? Yeah, I came across that a lot when um, studying medieval Europe at university. Ah, yes, yeah. So they don't really exist much today, uh, but it's a, for the audience, it's a state which has some limited self-rule, it is represented internationally and is totally kind of economically dependent on its parent state. The most well-known modern example, in fact, one of the last uh, modern examples, would be uh, probably Vichy France, which was initially relatively independent, but after 1942 was brought under the complete control of Germany and German interests, but was supposedly nominally independent. Uh, anyway, the island, or at least Paolo, continued to insist that he was the rightful king of his island, all the way through Italian unification and even beyond. Uh, again, for those who, who don't know, Italian unification lasted from about 1848 to um, generally everyone accepts the 1870s, though a few territories were added after World War I. Uh, and the whole project was essentially led by Sardinia. So you had a situation where Sardinia became and really took over Italy, but this tiny pimple of a kingdom, this little claggy poo of independence... <laughs> was kind of hanging off the end. His little claggy poo of independence. <laughs> and that is the episode title. <laughs> this strange, slightly strange situation carried on, and in 1886, Paolo died, and in his will declared that the island is now officially an independent constitutional republic with a figurehead monarchy. It became a democracy. All its 55 citizens, who were all part of the Bertolini family, including women, had voting rights, and there was an election every six years for six citizens, men and women, and a president to form a government. A few years later, the New York Times, of all, <laughs> of all people, reported on the third general election in, quote, the world's smallest nation, announcing that its government had been officially recognised by Italy as a whole in 1887. So this island became really quite well known. Its election results were being reported on in major US newspapers. <laughs> and you said 55 people lived on the island. 55 people lived on the island. Self-sufficient? Uh, or was no, it close were, enough to the mainland? It was close enough to the mainland. Okay. Uh, in fact, it was close enough to the mainland that uh, during, the, during the fishing off-season, the king often had to go to go to the mainland to find work. <laughs> <laughs> How embarrassing for the king. Yeah. So Paolo I was followed by King Carlo I, his son, who absolutely hated the job, once telling a newspaper... Quote, I do not care to be a king. It is enough for me to make as fine a lobster pot as my father did. However, whilst he might just have wanted a quiet life at sea rather than uh, a life of royalty, fate Tom had other ideas. And here's where Queen Victoria comes in. Because in June 1900, a British ship, the HMS Vulcan, moored at Tavalara with a very special mission. Victoria wanted to have a portrait or photograph of every royal family and leader in the world to hang up in Buckingham Palace. And that included... 
King Carlo and his family. And so Queen Victoria dispatched a proper Royal Navy ship with the royal photographer to this tiny little island in the middle of the Mediterranean for a photo shoot. And for over a century, the photo of a slightly pissed off looking... With goats in the background. Pissed off looking Carlo, <laughs> surrounded by several women who look very, very similar to him, with a load of goats in the background. Giving wet side <laughs> in- <laughs> signals yeah. with their hooves. <laughs> with boom boxes. <laughs> over their shoulders. Oh, Ghetto yeah. blasters. Today was a good day. Uh, for over a century, the photo hung alongside every other royal family from the Japanese emperor to the, the Maharajas of India in Buckingham Palace with the caption, The Royal Family of Tavalara in the Gulf of Terranova, the smallest kingdom in the world. And I believe it's still there on public display today. How ridiculous. Absolutely. So here you have a tiny kingdom of 55 people that has been recognised as an independent state by Italy as a proper monarchy by Queen Victoria... And basically, they're just a load of goat herders and fishermen <laughs> who spend half their time unemployed. That's not far off the royalty of all the other countries in Europe. <laughs> no, it's not, is it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. actually, I've been watching The Crown and they're remarkably similar. Yeah. So, so when he died, Carlo I passed on his throne to Paolo II. Uh, Paolo II couldn't afford to be king and left to find work. <laughs> Uh, again, as I said, apparently not a particularly profitable job, and left his sister Mariangela as regent in his stead. So I'm going to be the king, but you have to look after the country. She died in 1934, and here's where it gets controversial, Tom, because she left the kingdom to Italy in her will. Amazingly, actually, this was the last Italian territorial gain (laughs) that it still holds on to today, and it was the last piece of Italian reunification. This was the last Italian kingdom to join Italy as a nation. But the controversy, Tom, is that Paolo II wasn't consulted on this and, strictly speaking, was still the king. And right up until the 1960s, when he died, he was chasing this through the courts to have himself still declared the king of Tavalara. For what? What was the benefit? He didn't even live there. Uh, just, the, just the position. D- diplomatic immunity. <laughs> uh, the right to field an Olympic team. Uh <laughs> And then we get to today, Tom, and the island these days is uh, is nothing more than an odd tourist spot. It's popular with beachgoers and scuba divers. The family do still live there, owning the two restaurants and a gift shop on the island. <laughs> Glamorous. One of the restaurants is run by the current pretender to the throne, Antonio I. <laughs> um, so you can, you can go and you can be served pasta by a... Well, I say a real-life king. He's not legally recognised anymore, unfortunately, due to the island being gifted to Italy. But the descendant of royalty. The descendant of royalty, yeah. And by extension, the descendant of Adam and Eve, because we know that all the royalty were descended. Well, indeed. I've had dinner with a king before. Have you? Which king was that? Uh, I have had dinner with the king of Chitral in Pakistan. Went to his palace... Uh, which is, it's amazing, the palace is like something out of Indiana Jones. It's like a, a kind of wattle and daub, wooden uh, and mud castle, but it's a proper castle with turrets and everything built into the side of a mountain oh, nice. on big wooden stilts. It's absolutely amazing. He's a lovely man, really nice man. He was in his, uh, he was probably in his 70s. Was he one of these guys that had been educated in Oxford? Yes, he was, yeah. yeah. How did you, what, what was that for? Was that when you were doing this around the world, uh, the Silk Around Road? the world TV show thing, yes. I was doing many, many years ago. Did that ever come to anything? It did not come to anything. And actually, we weren't filming at the time. We just, um, he he just saw us out and about and invited us to come around for tea. So we didn't film it, but we, we went around and we had dinner with him. It was lovely. Nice, and a really big, t- what did he feed you? Uh, he fed us uh, Kashmiri chicken and rice and uh, sweet green tea. 
So it wasn't snakes out of a monkey's head or anything like that? No, but it was very much uh, reminiscent of that. Yeah. Like the vibe was very that. Very nice. Very Indiana Jones. It was brilliant. Lovely afternoon. So where, where was I? Yes. Um, so half the island is now also a NATO military base, which the public isn't allowed into. So there isn't even that much left of what was already a very small kingdom. <laughs> Uh, but Antonio does claim it. He claims that it's still rightfully his territory and he's launched several legal appeals to have his title recognised. So far, all unsuccessful, but he's still plugging away today, Tom. He's still plugging away today, so he could become king of uh, Tavalara, or the 50 acres of it that the family still own. More importantly, what's happened to the goats? I don't know, actually. I don't know if the goats are still there or if the goats were all hunted to extinction. But to be honest, they were just normal goats that ate this weird seaweed. So there's probably still some goldy-looking goats there. Goldy-looking goats. Yeah. Nice. But there we go, Tom. There we go. That is Tavalara, the smallest kingdom in the world uh, that is even smaller now and no longer a kingdom. It's got NATO base and no goats. And the king owns a restaurant. Uh, we need to think of topics, don't we? Ah, oh, now you wait for you, you, you. You're going to be delighted with what I've done. I've got organised. Got an idea? What have I got for us? I've got a big list. God, there's a lot here. Things that are edible that weren't before. Wacky races, unexpected journeys, mythical creatures that turned out to be real, medical procedures, indigenous people, South, Amer- South America, non-European explorers, genocides, leaders' lives after being exiled from their country, farms, farming, bulls and bears, weird lives of horror writers, origins of religions, cartoons. Um, ooh, I reckon cartoons for the next public one. Cartoons? Okay, so patron one. Um, medals. I was going to go medals. Me- medals, okay. Yeah, we can do medals. Silly medals. Medals. Strange things people have been awarded medals for. And then what did you say you wanted to do? Act of bravery. And then we're going to do cartoons. So medals for the patrons next week, cartoons for the public the week after. Sounds grand. Perfect. Marvellous. And if you do want to hear that patron exclusive episode on medals, uh, which will be out next Wednesday night, Thursday morning, sometime during Thursday, possibly Thursday evening, maybe Friday morning, depending on how organised I am. <laughs> Sorry, patrons. Then you can find it, uh, find us and join us at patreon.com slash that was genius. Uh, you can also join uh, join us on Facebook, either That Was Genius, a funny history podcast, that's the page, or much more fun, That Was Genius, a funny history podcast group where we just post memes and ask for our audience to post memes as well. And you can email us, that was geniuscast at gmail.com with any ideas that pretty much covers it doesn't it Tom? I think it does cover it yeah and we do like to hear from and, you and complaints complaints as well oh yeah I don't mind complaints I quite like complaints you're, you're sure of a fruity <laughs> response <laughs> no I do like I do enjoy hearing from listeners so please feel free to listen to us another thing that would be nice is if you do enjoy us but you don't enjoy us enough to become a patron uh, just a little review yes a review on your podcasting nice, app it? of choice just a re- yeah. yeah that'd be lovely or on uh, a very kind gesture podchaser.com that's a good one to leave a review on a review sir just a little review and also tell your friends review us to your friends yeah a recommendation will you sir <laughs> please sir shiny shoes sir and a recommendation right uh, that's pretty much it isn't it it is say goodbye Tom bye bye goodbye Tom Goodbye from Sam. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye.